Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brady Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And we are here today to talk about Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 5, The Bells, in which Lord John Connington recounts his experiences at the Battle of Stony Sept in Robert's Rebellion, ending his flashback with The Bells Told for Us All That Day, for Eris and his Queen, for Ilya of Dorne and her little daughter, for every true man and honest woman in the Seven Kingdoms, and for my silver prince. Wow, just so moving on John Connington's part to bring that up at the end of this episode. Really kind of touched me in places that shouldn't be touched. One of my favorite parts of A Dance with Dragons, and I love that they adapted the season eight. Who saw that coming? Not wow. I. It's crazy. Like, you, you have all of these book references coming out all over the place. But no, I mean, it's interesting, right, that they would bring up John Connington's and the bells and that scene from A Dance with Dragons and his memories from Robert's Rebellion here at this very, very late juncture in the story. It, it feels like almost like a homage or kind of echo to Jorah Mormont carrying John Connington's grayscale back in seasons five, six, and seven before he's cured apparently by Samuel Tarly but I, I don't know I, I I liked it I guess truly off-screen John Connington is providing some of Game of Thrones best moments <laughs> and uh we'll get into that and so much else about this episode it was uh, divisive once again which is becoming the theme for season eight each each episode is inspiring some uh, pretty intense reaction on both sides some of which gets heated some of which is not but it seems to be kind of a permanent reaction to the season itself and how the show is ending i think even more than the individuals individual flaws and strengths of a given episode you think that's fair that's absolutely fair and i feel like each episode since episode three has been centered on different types of battles if that makes sense in the fandom and different types of divisiveness episode three had a lot of people complaining about the plot mechanics and about the storytelling and the writing. And kind of that did lead into episode four, which I do still strongly feel that the negative reaction to episode four was derived from the long night and people's disappointment with that primarily. Even though both you and I thought that episode four was, was it was okay. I mean, it was good. Oh, good to okay, I would say, still. It was fine, mostly because nothing happened in it. <laughs> kind of the problem with season eight is when things really need to start to happen. It's, it's not quite as gripping as the buildup to things happening, which was... My primary complaint about The Long Night and my primary complaint about this one. Spoilers. 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 Yes. Spoilers. Great segue. So our spoiler warning, as we talk about in all episodes, so we talk about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, and especially Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So kind of in that same vein, talking about the kind of divisiveness of this episode, we talked about the episodes three and four having different permutations of fan conflict and people being upset about the episode. But I do feel that this episode, more than those two, has something else at work. In this episode, in my opinion, it's not the writing that people are criticizing. It's, how do I say this politely? It's people's perhaps lack of enjoyment that Game of Thrones is not fulfilling certain theories, certain character developments, and certain call them ships that are kind of going unfulfilled. And I do wonder whether this is something that's at work in kind of how Game of Thrones is being treated by the fandom. Is the fact that people aren't enjoying these later episodes in Game of Thrones Season 8 coming from a place where you know, that the Valencar theory isn't fulfilled or things like Brady is goes badly, badly unfulfilled and is painful to watch. Is is that what's going on here? Or is there something else at work with what's with the fan reaction to Game of Thrones season eight? I think there are a lot of factors at work here. I think really with any narrative, especially in the 
modern fandom age, it's difficult to separate disappointment with what you're seeing from disappointment that it's not what was in your head. And I, th- I think that's going to be true for any story because, you know, when it's in the middle or, or approaching the end, it can be anything. It can be any possibilities. And eventually it has to be one thing. And I think there's always a deflation that goes along with that, regardless of the quality. I saw that with Battlestar Galactica, where there's a lot to be said for how it ended, but it definitely disappointed a lot of people for, for some valid reasons. And it was just... I think the sense of possibility and promise in mid the mid middle seasons of that show that people were really hooked on, and then it could only fail to live up to those expectations because it actually had to pick a path, and that's that's compounded here because of the long wait for the book series, the relatively long wait for season eight in terms of the show that we waited two years for this particular season, the theory hive mind, the shipping wars. It's mm-hmm. not any one thing; it's all of them at once for a property this popular, mm-hmm. and. You know, I think you can point to plenty of unreasonable criticisms and shallow nitpicking about the show. And sometimes everyone does that to vent, ourselves included, just from coming off the emotional experience of watching the show. Mm. And I don't blame the people behind the show or professional critics for being exhausted with that by now. I do think when when you go back and watch the show as a whole, season eight will not feel like the same show as the first few seasons. For better or worse, the, the, I feel like the continuity is not strong. And I don't mean that in the literal sense of, you know, continuity within scenes or shots. I mean the sense of it being one coherent story that's told in, in one way. And that might be what we're all responding to in our own special ways. Some, you know, sometimes we do it more dysfunctionally than other times. I mean, it's fair to say that nothing would match the expectations, but that's as much a hypothetical as the better season of television in our heads. We don't know how we would react to any other version of Game of Thrones, but the one we got. And at the end of the day, standing Game of Thrones and shitposting about Game of Thrones has the exact same impact, which is nothing. <laughs> and maybe we're also feeling that sense of powerlessness. I mean, the, and I think the solution to that is one I know that George would encourage, which is write and create, because your creation is yours. And, you know, go write your own show is the dumbest of reply guy mantras when it's <laughs> about, you know, a knee-jerk response to any criticism of the show. Yeah, well, you go make your own. It's like, well, I don't have the budget for that. So <laughs> unless you're going to pony up the millions, I can't quite do that. But... Just in terms of writing your own essays about what you love about the books or trying out your own YouTube channel or, you know, getting into other books and drawing art and writing about that, I think that, I think that is the best cure for some of the kind of unsettlement and malaise, I think, that some people are approaching the show with right now, including myself. Yeah. But I mean, you're addressing that in your own life by writing this massive, huge, 45,000 word essay on your own Greyjoy, which I'm very excited to read about tomorrow or next week or the week after that, right? I'll get it out before wins. I can guarantee that. <laughs> True. I mean, that, you know, I've wanted to write a big catch all essay about Euron for a while, but I also felt like at some level, well, that's the best response to Euron not turning out in the show the way literally anyone hoped he would. As, you know, as much fun as it is to keep pointing that out, it's also just been pointed out. And at the end of the day, what, you know, I want to celebrate what, made me excited about Euron being in the show in the first place. And that's the character in the books who is, is, is a separate entity and I really enjoy writing about. So I, for me, that's the way forward. Yeah, I think it's a great way of looking at it. I mean, I do agree, though, that it's a dumb reply when people are like, oh, go write your own show or go write your own books, because it works a lot of ways as a casual backhanded dismissal of the way that people are are feeling. But it can be something valuable, too, like you were saying and what you're doing with your Euron essay. You know, last week I was talking with Chloe, a.k.a. Li- at Lizen Arbor on Twitter from the Girls Gone Canon podcast, that I didn't understand why so many of you people out there who are so much smarter than I am about this shit, who understand literary themes and character development, why you guys 
aren't out there creating and writing your own books. And I know the number of you guys are because, of course, I got the immediate reply from Grant being like, um, I'm right here, man. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, Grant, you have written books. You have written books. So you're actually way ahead of the curve of even 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 your uh, your uh, beloved podcast co-host here. But I mean, there's just like so got much goddamn creativity in this Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones community, especially those who are interested in writing side of things. You know, get on it. We can have a writing group together. So, you know, message me or don't message me. Don't never DM because I never respond. I sometimes do. But yeah, I, I do agree, though, that the standing and shitposting theories or characters doesn't really have any impact on how the story plays out. But that's not to say that it's unimportant, those like standing and shitposting all that stuff because as one of our sworn swords lady vanessa c at vk cole artist on twitter had a really wonderful thread on twitter today about what daenerys targaryen meant to her individually as a character and how her arc touches her specifically because of her fears over mental illness in her family i mean that's that's powerful shit man and fictional characters and stories are supposed to have that impact on us we're supposed to we're supposed to feel something when ned stark dies at the end of a game of thrones we're supposed to feel a whole lot of emotions at the red wedding like that's what effective literature and effective media does to us but you know ultimately some theories or character conceptions or some ships so to speak end up hitting the dustpan or don't really pan out the way that fans want you know as an example Emmett was well ahead of the curve on this but I remember feeling like D&D ruined Stannis by having him burn Shireen and felt like it was impossible for this to happen in the books I mean hell me, I even tried rationalizing when Benioff did his inside the episode thing of when George told us about this thing. But, you know, after reflecting on Stannis, his arc, the stories and the themes that are involved with him, and listening and reading to some excellent analysis on Stannis, I accepted it. You know, death of the artist only goes so far, and the stopping point is the actual plot resolution there. And if you're unsatisfied and you want to write something else, if you want to write fan fiction about how you would do Game of Thrones Season 8 better, you know, let me know about that writing group, man. That's all I got to say about it. Just DMs are always open. <laughs> you make excellent points, sir. And yeah, Vanessa did a terrific thread about Daenerys, and and she's really a great example of what I was talking about because she does such amazing art about the characters of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. And every time one of her, she shows us one of her portraits, everyone's just amazed by it and for good reason. Yeah. And, and that's what, that's what really I think sustains this community when the, the show is over and the waiting for the books resumes, though hopefully not as long <laughs> as we're all dreading it might be. But that's something I love to see. And that's something that I think is going to survive no matter what happened in this episode and what happens next episode. But you know, you make an excellent point. People, can invest in the characters really any way they want to. And I think it's, I'm not trying to suggest that any way of doing it is bad, but it's the, the collision of it with how things are going in the show is a sad feeling in a lot of ways. I think we're, we're coming at this with a lot of complicated emotions. I think, you know, we're, we're all trying to sort it out. And in, in all of that, we don't necessarily respond to the show as just the show, which is unfortunate at some level, but also inevitable and understandable. Yeah, that is absolutely true. So, let us know what you guys think about why maybe this season isn't having as much of an impact. I mean, we got a lot of questions and comments about season eight in not just this Q&A post on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash not ASOF. But we've gotten in our previous Q&A sessions, we've got a we could sense a fair amount of emotion from those of you who are responding to these episodes. So if you think like we have good ideas, let us know if you think you have a better idea. We would also like to hear that, too. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things we've really loved about doing these show episodes is 
the amount of interest not only in listening to the episodes but also engaging with us and talking about theories episode to episode and we've seen that evolve over the course of the season even with fewer episodes than normally in a season that's been a great pleasure so thanks so much guys yeah thank you guys so very much so now on to the synopsis for game of thrones season eight episode five the bells Varys is practicing his calligraphy, writing about how Daenerys is the daughter of Rhaegar and Lyanna. Wait, I'm, I'm wrong again. Why my notes always fucked up? When one of his spies comes in to let him know that Daenerys isn't eating. John lands a dragonstone at the screenwriter's order to, um, I guess, let Danny know that the Northern Army is crossing the Trident. Uh, thanks, John. But I mean, you could have just sent a fucking note. Varys confronts John, telling him that he should be king. John gets that, thinks he's taking a bite of apple pie. Turns out there's ketchup inside. Look, says he doesn't want the Iron Throne. Tyrion looks on. Tyrion meets up with a quite upset Daenerys Targaryen. She says that someone has betrayed her. Who is this mysterious person? John. Wait, John? Yes, John. Tyrion tells her that he knows about John. Narks on Varys and Sansa too. Danny tells Tyrion that Jaime has been taken prisoner and she plans to attack King's Landing. Tyrion pleads with her not to attack the city if bells are rung, signaling the city's surrender. Next, Varys is doing more calligraphy when Grey Worm and the Unsullied arrive. They put Varys into chains. Varys is let outside and he's burned alive by Drogon. Rip. John meets up with Danny after Varys is burned. They begin to embrace, but something's not quite right. Daenerys says that the people won't love her, so they'll have to fear her instead. Yikes, this is not going to go in a great place. Tyrion gets over to Jaime, frees him in an attempt to get him to flee with his sister from King's Landing. Sander and Arya arrive in the chaos of King's Landing and begin navigating through the city, choked with terrified as shit civilians. Meanwhile, Euron's puttering about the silence with a dumb look on his face. He probably just read a copy of The Forsaken that a very handsome co-host of mine sent him. Isn't that right, very handsome co-host of mine? No comment, Jeff. <laughs> you have to look on, twi- on, Emma's, on Emma's Twitter feed to find a little bit more about that. Euron looks up high into the sky, then Daenerys comes down atop Drogon and smokes the Iron Fleet. Rip. Iron Fleet, I guess. She begins strafing the city walls, burning Lannister mooks, manning scorpions atop the walls. Rip. Lannister goons, I guess, as well. We cut over to Jaime, Arya, and Sander all trying to gain access to the Red Keep. Arya and Sander get through, but not Jaime. He gets in via a side street and then out to the beach only to discover Victarion Greyjoy. No, wait. It's actually Euron. They stool, sort of. Euron stabby stabs Jamie. Jamie stabby stabs Euron. It's, oh boy, Euron is left for dead, and Jamie proceeds onto the dungeons under the Red Keep, wounded. Outside of King's Lane, the Golden Company lined up resplendent in their golden armor. Harry, penis face, Strickland rides out on top of his horse with an utterly unearned smug look on his face. Then Daenerys uses a JDAM Drogon class and blasts a hole in the wall, torching more Lannister and Golden Company goons. The Golden Company flees back into King's Landing. Harry Strickland gets Grey Worm's spear in his back. Rip. John, Davos, and Grey Worm and the Unsullied flow into King's Landing, killing their way into the city as Danny continues to provide close air support and, and clearing the walls of Lancer troops. Lots of Lancers bite it. It's fine. Everything is fine. It's not fine. Cersei stands with Kyburn as parts of the city burn. Kyburn does his whole kind of, uh, hey, maybe we should get the fuck out of here before we're all killed thing, but Cersei refuses. Finally, John and company come up on a knot of Lancer swordsmen. Everyone stands still as Daenerys refuels Drogon on top of building, and then the bells toll, and the Lancer men throw down their arms. The battle is over. The city is saved. And that is Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 5. What did you think of this? Oh, wait. No, actually, it's not over. Danny gets that look. You know the one. The one where the man breaks. She launches Drogon into the air and she begins burning King's Landing, killing civilians and Lannister soldiers alike. John and Davos are shocked by this turn, but Grey Room and the Unsullied leap into motion, killing the Lannister soldiers who had just thrown down their arms. The Lannisters try to pick up their swords again to defend themselves, but it's clear they're all just dead meat. 
Sorry, rip Lancer soldiers. Inside the Red Keep, Sander tells Arya to get lost and not to become him. Arya, thanks, Sander. And it's a nice moment. And then Sander goes to fetch a bowl. Daenerys' dragonfire reaches the Red Keep. Cersei, Kyber, and Gregor and some red shirt, white cloaks, black cloaks? Queensguard, Queensguard. Finally start moving away from the Red Keep onto mid towards Maker's Hold Fast. Arya gets out of the Red Keep and finds chaos and innocent civilians are burned alive by, dr- by Danny's dragonfire. Wildfire caches start exploding around the Red Keep. John sees a northern soldier attempting to rape a woman in King's Landing. He kills her. He then orders his army northmen to pull out of King's Landing. Everything is not fine. Everything is fucking horrible. Cersei, Kybert, Gregor, and the Blackguard. Yeah, I'm settling on that. Descend a flight of stairs. There, Sanders waiting for them. Sandy kills the Blackguard lickety-split and then there's only Cersei, Kybert, and Gregor left. Kybern tells Gregor to move on, but nah. Gregor smashes Kybern, which is nice. And then Cersei darts past Gregor. Gregor and Sander duel. Gregor starts to open Sander, but Sander pulls a knife and puts it through Gregor's eye. Then they fight some more, and Sander and Gregor fall off the Red Keep and into a pool of dragonfire below. Rip, Sander. You are already dead, though, Gregor, so you get nothing. Burn, you fucking bastard. Cersei gets down to the massive map floor of the room and meets up with Jamie. She doesn't want to die. Jamie gets her down to the Black Cells, but they find all the passageways out of the castle blocked from the rubble. Cersei sobs that she doesn't want her child to die. Jamie embraces her. The roof collapses on top of them, killing them both. Rip. Arya wakes up covered in dust. She finds a white horse, and the name on him was Death. She mounts him and rides out of a city in flame. And that is Game of Thrones, Season 8, Episode 5, The Bells. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What did you think of this episode, Emin? The whole time Arya was running through Danny's flames, all this beautiful cinematography and gorgeous effects and the effort put into every, every frame... And all I could think about was Stannis burning Shireen in season five. Because I was watching with the same, okay, technically yes, but expression. Because the foundational idea, I think, clearly does come from the source material. And there is build up to it on the show. But there are several significant factors absent that give it more meaning, I think, if you look at the build up in the books. And I think ultimately wasn't there uh, for this episode. It was, it was also like the long night for me. And that it was an often breathtaking piece of television purely on its own merits. But it had this nagging feeling of emptiness at the end, like the exertion was out of proportion with the reward. But regardless of what I have to say about this episode, a lot of what I was feeling while I was watching it didn't really have anything to do with this episode itself, but just what it felt like watching this show come to a conclusion. And, you know, not to bum everybody out, but it just, it it really hit me the fact that the fact that these books aren't complete (laughs) really damaged both the show and the discourse around it. And, and this is more true than ever now because the books are just an open wound the show is poking simply by virtue of ending, which the books haven't. <laughs> and we, we have to add this whole other layer to our debates of, is this book canon though? Which, you know, I enjoy because there's just a bottomless hole inside me. <laughs> Not but true. It's ultimately, but it's ultimately hollow because we don't know and we fear we never will. And we're comparing it to this, this hypothetical story and that's ultimately not the most healthy way to relate to this or any material. And this cuts deeper than just nitpicking because as I said earlier, there's a real sadness I sense with some of us as we near the end of the show that wouldn't exist if they were adapting a complete story. Hmm. Like, if, if these books were finished, this adaptation could be much worse than it is, and it would still be able to provide a closure that this version can't because the books aren't finished. You know what I mean? Hmm. I mean, this, this is just not how anyone wanted it to go. Not us, not D&D, and not George, as he just said, shooting down the rumor that you were also shooting down. About him having a secret deal and wins and dream all ready to go. He said, I wish that I had wins just ready to go like that. No one wishes that more than me. So I came out of this episode feeling like I'm kind of glad this show is going to be done soon. Hmm. But if and when we get the wins of winter, I think I will revisit the show 
and I will enjoy it more than I did the first time through because that relationship, that tension will be at least a little bit relieved. Yeah, that's a really great and interesting point. I think my, my, my initial reaction to this episode was quite positive, apparently, um, shockingly. You're allowed, Jeff, just because I'm sitting in the funeral singing behind blue eyes to myself every day doesn't mean you have to join me. But I think you make a fantastic point. I mean, I gave it a nine out of 10, like as an overall episode, but I'm looking at it in a vacuum, like when I was evaluating it, looking at it in the broader context of the show ending. I mean, I'm sitting here on Monday, May 13th, 2019. And on May 19th, 2019, Game of Thrones is done. Like at this time or an hour, I guess, from now when we're recording it, the show is ending and that's, that's, it's finality, right? I mean, I, I, I hate to like, act all nostalgic about something like this but it you know i started watching the show back in 2011 and it was a defining part of my cultural experience grown in in the 2010s and now it's just about to be over and yeah i do think that there is a real sadness that's there with the show ending and i think part of that sadness is being augmented by the fact that we don't have the books not just to compare the books to the tv show but also to be also to evaluate things on different mediums. I mean, lots of folks, and I've only read the books one time, but lots of folks talk about Lord of the Rings and their adaptation in the film series as being really an interesting relationship because there's so much more lore, descriptions, mental states of characters that are being fleshed out in Tolkien's work. But Peter Jackson's adaptation of it presents a whole lot, a lot of other great stuff as well. I think the cinematography is great. I think the writing is particularly good for the Lord of the Rings series. I think the battles are pretty epic, all things considered. And we're not going to get to the Hobbit movies because, God, fuck those movies. But, you know, I I would really have preferred to have, you know, The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring on my left hand as I'm watching Game of Thrones Season 8 on my right. I mean, that's that is sad. I mean, there's it's not like sad. It's like uh, like actually genuinely sad, you know, and that's 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 something, man. Well, it, it's sad and like, you know, a, a sit in a comfortable armchair and just stare out the window. It's very poetic like Proustian kind of sad, which is, you know, is, is the kind of sad that I just live with daily. So I rather enjoy It's like, yeah, I'm mildly depressed, but that's been going on since birth, if not sooner. So it's, it's, it's nothing new. But, you know, it's, such thoughts have been there kind of since it became clear that Wins was, you know, not going to come out before season six of the show. I think a, a kind of a certain weight settled on a lot of our shoulders around then that we've all just kind of lived with. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. And, the, you know, I just it's it's interesting to me all the emotions it's it's stirring up and how those emotions have a lot to do with the show and at the same time kind of nothing to do with the show. And I think yeah. uh, I think some of the some of the stuff gets overshadowed. So getting that out of the way early is great so that I can focus on the actual episode itself. <laughs> that's true. So given that, what did you you think you like this episode uh, more than I did? Although I agree, I think it's the second best episode of the season pretty much by default. So, uh, just, I know, right? Not bad. So what did, what did you think the highlights of it were, sir? Oh, man. Yeah, I... I loved a lot of things about this episode itself, and I'm going to get into a bit more about the Daenerys stuff, a lot of the fucking shit about the Daenerys stuff. There's going to be a lot. We'll, we'll talk about it, we promise. But I wanted to highlight one thing that we're not going to focus on a whole lot here, but I really, really, really loved the fact that Arya was her point of view for the horrors of war in King's Landing, and I thought her point of view was really 
affecting to me. Like I, I was watching this and at first I had this feeling like, oh God, here we go again. Arya is going to be the one who's going to kill Cersei and we're going to, there's no Valonqar theory and that's the way it's going to go. Great. Fantastic healing for this to happen. But I was genuinely touched when Sandor sent Arya away and Arya thanks him because basically Arya is getting her life back at that point. But then she has to navigate the horrors of war. And man, it, it really reminded me so strongly of Arya attempting to navigate the horrors of war in A Clash of Kings and season two of Game of Thrones, where she's in Harrenhal and she's seeing these terrible, horrible things occurring all around her. And she survives that experience in season two and in A Clash of Kings. She survives this experience too, but it's just, it's basically taking it up to 11, the things that she saw back in Harrenhal. And that's really, it was really affecting to me. And Lady Beware, one of our Sworn Sword patrons, asked us, what did you guys think of Arya's story in this episode? I've heard a lot of complaints that she didn't do anything. For me, it felt like it was a callback to her POV as the eyes of the plight of the small folk. Personally, I liked it. It humanized her again, making her not just the savior of Winterfell anymore. She was as helpless as everyone else. I do think going forward, she has a new name on her list, though, and likely a dragon also. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that was amazing, too, that Arya was our point of view for the small folk and watching the destruction that's being wrought there. And I do think I've heard some complaints that there was just like violence porn going on here, but I didn't have that same reaction when I watched this. I know some people do. Emmett might, you might have felt that it was just kind of got tiring after a while. I wouldn't go as far as violence porn. I think you could cut like 20, 25% of it and maybe make it a tighter episode. But I think that's a minor complaint. I think thematically, you nailed it and Lady Beward nailed it. Arya is the perfect character for that kind of point of view experience. And for me, that that's a great use of your Arya. Like, you know, my reaction to what you did in The Long Night wasn't because I don't like Arya as a character and I don't want her to do things. It's just that she's had no interaction with that significant chunk of the plot. But running around with the small folk as they experience the horrors of war falling on top of them, literally in this case, mm-hmm. and her trying to save as many as she can desperately in the confusion, that's what Arya always does. Yeah. That's been a huge element of her story with her various skills in various places, if you look in the books. That holds true even in Bravos when she's always trying to help people out and learn their ways in the city as she's wandering in the canals. And of course, as, as you say, it's a huge part of her story in the Riverland. So, yeah, I mean, I really think Arya's been like the surprise highlight of season eight. <laughs> I didn't expect that at all because she was one of the lowlights of season seven on the whole and in, in just pure murder robot mode, which, you know, it was fine for one mode of Arya's character, but just having her be in that permanently was just really rigid and irritating. And she's been allowed to breathe and act as a human being in this season in a lot of, in a lot of ways, which I really like. Yeah. And yeah, this, this, the Sandor Arya moment was great, especially her calling him Sandor. <laughs> uh, that was, that was quite lovely. So I'm I'm definitely glad I got to see that. Yeah, I'm really glad to see that too. Like I felt when I was watching Arya's storyline in this episode that I was watching Arya essentially get her life back. She was no longer no one. And this is this is one of my main complaints about season seven is that she felt very one note. Like, ooh, what's she going to do next? She's so mysterious. And it, she's so edgy. Right. And I was like, God, just fucking give her an actual story arc in season seven. And I have heard this as well. And I agree with this actual criticism. Like a lot of the bad things about season eight are because that Arya and Sansa storylines in season seven were just so lackluster until like the very end where they kill Littlefinger. I I think that's true. But in season eight here in this particular episode, I felt that Arya getting her life back, becoming Arya Stark of Winterfell again, riding her white horse off was really, like I said, affecting. It was very affecting to me. A very emotional moment for me in the episode. Yeah, I've heard complaints about the white horse. And I'm like, that's the kind of thing where I just consider picking this at this point. Because like, guys, it's not... 
That's not an obscure symbol, exactly. <laughs> I'm a filthy pagan heretic, but even I know that kind of prophecy set up when I see one. Like, it's, I mean, and that, yeah, that's great and perfectly effective. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed Arya. Uh, for me, personally, some other highlights in the episode. Uh, Ramen really brought the score again. That, that, like, chunky, pulsating beat really held the first part of the episode together. It's, it was very similar to the stuff in The Long Night, which I really like. That kind of John Carpenter, hypnotic <laughs> kind of drone orientation, I think, is really cool. And it's different from the big sweeping string sections that you usually associate with the show, which are also great, of course, from the the, the title theme on down. Uh, Kyburn's death was hysterical. I love that this is the one moment everyone agreed was great. Everyone, <laughs> even people who didn't like the episode at all, thought this was pretty awesome because, of course, of course, that's how he goes down. The, the, just one day, Robert Strong goes, you know what? Flick. <laughs> Done with you. And that, that is just guaranteed to happen in the books. I would put money on that happening in Winds of Winter. I don't, you know, obviously the context is going to be different, but at some point, Kyburn's just going to go over the line. It's going to be like, nah, you're, you're done. So, and I also really enjoyed in terms of small details. Varus's last little preparations as he realized that they're coming for him and like the camera zooms in and he's taken off the ring he's like he wants to grab his own man and like mm-hmm. done with disguises and you know I think Danny being responsible for Varus's death as we'll uh, touch on in a little bit is uh, I think a version of something we'll see in the books I don't think it's going to be treason involved because he was never loyal to her <laughs> in the first place and isn't going to end up an advisor first I don't think but you know I enjoyed Varus in the last episode and I enjoyed him here in the same way that I enjoy Stannis in season five being humanized lately, even though it was kind of blatantly just so you, you kind of cared when he died. Same, same deal here. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, to kind of circle back to the music though, I really loved how Ramin or, or Ramen, whatever however her name is pronounced. I apologize because you're a, a listener of ours, of course. Is it Ramen? Uh, I honestly don't know. You should probably look it up. <laughs> whatever. Um, but I, I did love how he utilized different portions of previous season soundtracks i loved having love in the eyes come back again which is season one's um uh, it's the sixth track in season one i loved having the lancer always pays his debts as well coming out as well and i really love those notes from light of the seven just kind of echoing very faintly as shit was going real bad for cersei at the end of this this episode i thought that was really really good so I, and you know you said it really well before him. They does get the pro- proper amount of praise. Absolutely, he does. He does. He does terrific work. Um, he reminds me of the way that the Hans Zimmer score works in the Zack Snyder Superman <laughs> movies. Because I'm not a big fan of the Zack Snyder Superman movies, but Hans Zimmer really brings it in terms of score. So you can just you can just enjoy that even if you're not liking what's on screen. And yeah, that's he he does some of the best work on the show. So that has never changed, even as his style has evolved over the course of the series, which I think is fascinating. And as you say, he makes great callbacks to earlier work. So it's that's kind of that's. I feel like that's an artistic canon unto itself at this point mm-hmm. and, and sh- should definitely be praised as such. So we said enough nice things. Let's go back to the negatives. <laughs> what did you think was a low light of the bells? Yeah. yeah like I said, I, I gave this episode a nine out of 10 in a vacuum. Of course, not considering the overall uh, of the season, but uh, my low is going to be the same as yours, but I did have to pick a different one from yours, but I figured I would give you the one that was more conducive to who you are as, as an individual and a human being as a podcaster. Why, thank you, sir. Of course. And my, so my low light is that it would have been real nice to see the Golden Company in action. You know, they're supposed to be. Who? Yeah. Who, who exactly? Who are the Golden Company? They're supposed to be the most fearsome sellsword band in Essos. They're an amazing combined arms force using elephants, cavalry, knights, combining Westerosi and Asosi tactics on the battlefield they're built up as being this amazing fighting force in a dance with dragons and we see them in action at the battle of griffin's roost and we're like yeah these guys are pretty kick-ass as a fighting force 
But here, instead, they go out like chumps, and Penis Face's grace note is Grey Worm's spirit is back. Uh, Am I supposed to feel something? No. I mean, no. And I mean, like, in the books, I'm not going to feel anything when Harry Strickland dies like a a chump, because he is a chump in the books, too. Uh, Other characters are a bit more uh, sound and a bit more serious and more interesting in the Golden Company. So I guess we're going to have to wait for the Wins winner to get to see the Golden Company, again, the best fighting force this side of the Unsullied in action against the Tyrells come Westerosi Agincourt. And that kind of gets back to what you're saying, too, where it'd be nice to have the books on one hand be like, okay, so we're seeing the Golden Company as one version in the show. Now we have the version where the Golden Company defeat a pretty substantial army in the form of the Tyrells in the Winds of Winter, because of course they have to defeat the Tyrells because Aegon has to at least seize King's Landing or the Iron Throne for at least a hot second. So that was my major low light for this episode. The Golden Company, they, they just suck. Why were they even in this fucking show? Excellent point, sir. And yeah, I mean, Homeless Harry is not going to be an emotional death in the books either. He's definitely a tertiary character, not someone you're supposed to be super invested in. The emotional heart of that storyline is John Connington, mm-hmm. but we'll get back to him in a second. <laughs> uh, we've teased him a couple of times. And yeah, the Golden Company, this is just baffling to me because thank you for allowing me to talk about Uranus as we'll, <laughs> as we'll do in a second. But at least the argument for him is you need a dialogue partner for Cersei after Jamie clears out of town. She needs someone just to talk to in scenes. But Harry Strickland didn't even do that. The Golden Company wasn't even around for that purpose. Literally all they did was get blown up by Danny and run down by the Dothraki over the course of a couple <laughs> minutes. They didn't even t- turn sides or put up a decent fight at first. They didn't even perform the narrative function of propping up Cersei, as they're supposed to be doing. You could just have her have a random amount of Lannister soldiers, however enough she needs to have to last this episode. Whatever, it's fine. You don't have to invent these characters at all. That's just baffling, even putting aside the fact, as you say, that they're this intense, interesting military machine in the books that is sure to get up to some powerful stuff in battles come the Winds of Winter, which will be terrific, of course. So what about you? I mean, we, we talked about the Golden Company. They're utterly fucking useless. There's another character that seems a little bit useless as well. So much for Euron Greyjoy, huh? <laughs> Staring right down the barrel of the camera into my soul. Given one of the most baffling and unsatisfying death scenes on the show to match his waste of a character. The, the only silver lining here is that I think we can officially divorce him from his book character and conclude that his name was just plucked from A Feast for Crows to prop up Cersei in the same way that the Golden Company was just plucked from A Dance with Dragons and no context is the same. So there's a bittersweet pleasure I get from that as you would get from a richly deserved divorce, where it's like, wow, that happened, but at least it's over. At least I never have to touch it again. That's not Euron. He's as much a show invention as Roz or Kinvara or Ed Sheeran. Like, he doesn't he doesn't actually exist in canon, and no one will mourn him. Wow, that's, that's, that's harsh, but it's absolutely true. I mean, like, God, what was the fucking point of Euron? Like, it, it felt like to me, when I was watching this episode... That the last episode, the Iron Fleet was set up to be like, ooh, they can take down dragons. That's their, it's going to be a big deal come the next episode. And they just fucking evaporated under Danny's dragonfire. Now, I do appreciate that, you know, Daenerys attacked from the sun so he, they couldn't see her until she was like right there and stuff like that. I guess I appreciate the tactics a little bit more than last episode and that stupid fucking ambush. But at the same time, I want to be like, these guys have to matter. They have to be important. But it feels like basically they serve their plot function of killing a dragon. So now the show writers ripped away the plot armor that the Iron Fleet and Euron Greyjoy had in order to ensure that Daenerys could coast her way into victory. And I do feel like that Daenerys coasting her way into victory was part of the major point. But at the same time, like you've said multiple times, you're not supposed to see the hand of the screenwriter working its way through the story itself. You want to see 
things working out organically. And yes, the screenwriters for this episode and for Game of Thrones and George R. R. Martin himself always have an end state in mind for these characters and these plot beats. George especially wants those plot beats to be resolved organically within the story itself. And the death of Euron Greyjoy was just totally fucking unsatisfying on multiple, multiple levels. But like you, I'm glad that that Euron is not going to be the same in the books. He's definitely not going to die by the hands of Jaime Lannister in a cave underneath of King's Landing in A Dream of Spring. No, no thanks. And I know that the only thing people are salvaging out of this in terms of what might be canon is that he hooks up with Cersei in the books at some point. And I know there are a fair amount of people who think that, and they are entitled to their laughable opinions. <laughs> but absolutely not. First of all, like I think maybe the way Show Euron looks has replaced what he looks like in the books in a lot of people's heads. Because Show Euron is kind of just the swaggering doofus that Cersei does tend to strategically sleep with in the books. <laughs> people like Osmond Kettleblack or someone like that. I understand that, but Euron in the books is this like creepy, weird sorcerer with drug-addled blue lips who explicitly freaks everybody out mm-hmm. all the time. And like even Cersei's looking at that, going, "No, I I sleep with humans. I don't know what that is, <laughs> but I'm not touching it." And Euron would look at Cersei like, "Okay, cool. You got any dragons? No. Got any weird, cool artifacts? No. Drugs? No. There's nothing for him there." So sidebar on that, but yeah, I don't think any element of this is Euron Greyjoy. I think that that's a name they, they, they used for their purposes in the same way that they recontextualized Frey Pies for their purposes. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do with adaptation inherently. It's not. But I think in Euron's case, they just, they brought so little to the table. Mm. I, you know, that's that's a great point you bring up about it being like kind of a callback to the books that book fans are like, no, I mean, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, it, thanks, I hate it. I mean, it's the same way with the Golden Company too. Golden Company, you're on Greyjoy and you know, Frey Pies, like all of those events in the past two seasons have been drawn from the books themselves as kind of like a bone to book fans. And in some sense, maybe maybe there's a greater purpose in mind that they had originally, but it felt as a watcher that it was just a bone thrown to us, but it was a bone that we didn't want to fucking chew. <laughs> we are bad dogs, Jeff, is what you're saying. We are very bad and disobedient, which that sounds about right. <laughs> yes, it does. But on the same note about characters that are and events that are being drawn from the books and whether they're going to match events that will be occurring in The Winds of Winter or A Dream of Spring, we now have to turn our attention to the two seminal moments that we've chosen for this episode, namely Daenerys Targaryen nuking King's Landing. And secondly, Jamie as the, well, I'll reveal my special name for Jamie here in a little bit here, but as the person who turns out to be not the Valonqar. So figure we would talk first a little bit about Daenerys because this was the event from this episode that has really generated a lot of discourse, hashtag discourse, in good ways and in bad ways as well. And here's the thing, pure analysis of Daenerys burning King's Landing is hard. It's probably fucking impossible. The, The showrunners and George, whenever he gets to this event in the books, they don't want us to look at Danny burning King's Landing in an emotionless analytical lens like, oh, well, Daenerys flies from point A to point B, burning the following street and taking out the following people. And the reason why she did this in a narrative sense, like, no, we're supposed to be horrified by this event. And it's supposed to make us angry. And I think the reaction against Daenerys burning King's Landing after its surrender, or at least after the surrender of the Lannister army, is intended to be jarring. So jarring that some people don't believe it will occur in similar fashion in the books. And look, 
I think it will occur in somewhat similar fashion, not totally, but I'm also not here to say that the buildup and the groundwork, or even when this event happens, won't be different come the Winds of Winter Dream Spring, whenever it actually occurs in the books. It, it won't be. There's an Aegon-sized plot that will set the groundwork for this event in the books, which is something that two of our poor fellow patrons, Grey Reboot and Sir Alex S., asked about. But, like I said, Daenerys nuking King's Landing will occur in the books too. So I said on Twitter that I talk about how this event was heavily foreshadowed in the show and that it didn't just come from nowhere. So let's back up a little bit and start with a very basic premise. In A Song of Ice and Fire and in A Game of Thrones to a little bit of a lesser extent, Martin and David and Dan really enjoy paring down virtues that people take for granted and examining them against dire tidings. I mean, think about a character that I love to talk about, Sir Barristan Selmy and his honorable service as a Kingsguard Knight. When we first encounter Barristan in Game of Thrones, we think of Barristan as the be-all, end-all, honorable knight. But Martin peels away those layers and has us questioning his honor, his vows, especially in service of a bad king in the form of Robert Baratheon. But when we get Barristan's point of view in A Dance with Dragons, we see more layers peeled away, where Barristan's vows and service is evaluated against Aerys II Targaryen, a monster. Is honorable service to an evil king an actual good? I... No, yes, no. I mean, those are the kinds of questions that George and the showrunners, to a little bit of a lesser extent, want to evaluate. Transitioning over to Daenerys Targaryen, the, one of the defining, if not the most defining aspect of her character is that she's a character who gives a shit about the innocents, about the small folk, about people who are former slaves and who are current slaves, who wants to safeguard these people from the horrors of war, of slavery, of violence. We should, and we often do on, on the main Not A Cast episodes, applaud Danny for these actions. But however, and however, Martin and the showrunners, to a lesser extent, want us to evaluate the actions which flow from Danny's noble heart. And in doing this kind of interior evaluation of Danny's actions when she's confronted with true evil, we see that sometimes Danny makes violent, often dark moves in both the show and the books. And these actions are all flowing from the premise, more often than not, that evil men or women have harmed innocents and Daenerys is then lashing out violently against the oppressors. So to break this down a little bit, I would I figure what I do is I kind of talk about what I saw in the buildup and the foreshadowing groundwork in the show, and then I'll transition to some additional stuff that's in the books, but is not necessarily featured in the show. So in season two, we have Daenerys threatening to burn Karth if it didn't open the gates to her. And this is done because Daenerys and her people are dying in the Red Waste outside of Karth. If they don't get into the city, they're all going to die. She's looking to safeguard innocence, but she secures their passage partially into Karth as a result of her declaration that she will burn the city if she's not let in. And then we have this famous scene from both season four of the show and in A Storm of Swords where Daenerys crucifies the Great Masters. And just before she can actually give the order, Barristan confronts Danny to have a conversation with her in which Barristan says, Your Grace, may I have a word? The city is yours. All these people, they're your subjects now. Sometimes it is better to answer injustice with mercy. And then Daenerys replies, I will answer injustice with justice. Boom, everybody gets crucified. And then to kind of add a little bit more context to it, Dan Weiss, one of the showrunners, said in the Inside the Episode portion of it, we've never had a sense of her capacity for cruelty. She's surrounded by people who are terrible people but haven't done anything to her personally. And it's interesting to me that as the sphere of her empathy widens, the sphere of her cruelty widens as well. And then to kind of augment that, Emilia Clarke, who plays Daenerys Targaryen, said in that same Inside the Episode, the crucifixion of the children has struck a chord in her that has clouded any kind of helpful leadership values she may have had in there. She convinces herself that what she's doing is what any commander would do. But actually, it's not what a great leader would do. 
So that's Danny's Crucifixion of the Great Masters in Marine. I'll talk a little bit more about the book context and how that helps to augment this perspective that Amelia Clark and Dan Weiss are sharing. Transitioning over to season five, Danny burns a great master and then feeds him to her dragons after Sir Barrison is killed by the Sons of the Harpy. Now, recall that this event occurs in Season 5, Episode 5, right after Barrison has been murdered slash killed by the Sons of the Harpy, depending on your perspective. Murdered, I would say. She's pissed, and she's right to be pissed. I mean, he was ambushed in cold blood and killed in cold blood. But then she rounds up the leaders of the great master families of Marine, selects a great master prisoner at random, and really, it's at random. I rewatched this scene a couple times, and has him burned and eaten by a dragon, saying, who is innocent? Maybe all of you are. Maybe none of you are. Maybe I should let the dragons decide. And then finally in season seven, at after the Lutrain battle, Daenerys burns Randall and Dickon Tarly, who are prisoners of war, after they refuse to bend the knee to Daenerys Targaryen. And yes, I understand that people will say that they they surrender, but they refuse to bend the knee, so they're actually combatants on the battlefield. But I don't share that perspective, both in a modern context as well as in a Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones context. And this is just me speaking extemporaneously, but... You know, we did a lot of awful shit in the United States in the early 2000s after we had prisoners who had surrendered, who had not renounced their loyalty to Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. And because that they were still seen as as combatants on the battlefield and they could still be treated in a terrible, awful way. So I, I don't think that we're supposed to look at the burning of Randall and Dick on Tarly and be like, yeah, justified, totally justified. It, 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 they're prisoners of war. So... That's a lot of what I'm seeing in the first seven seasons of the show. And of course, we have Daenerys burning Vars, the spider. And yes, people have pointed out that, yeah, this guy, he was looking to overthrow Daenerys Targaryen. He was potentially looking to poison her. Apparently, the person who was his spy was a kitchen wench, and she maybe he was looking to poison her with her food. Understandable that she's executing Vars the Spider, executing Randall and Dick on Tarly. It's understandable that she burns that she burns the Great Master and she crucifies the Great Masters in Marine. So that's what I'm seeing in the show that works to foreshadow what happens in this episode and works as groundwork to identify Daenerys' mental state when she's evaluating things when she, her and Drogon are atop that building in King's Landing. But we do have to talk a little bit a little bit about the books, too, because the other argument that I've seen is that, oh, this event is not going to occur in the books or will occur very differently in the books. The second argument I have more sympathy for, we'll get into that a little bit. The first argument I don't have a lot of sympathy for, because we have lots of stuff in the books themselves. In Storm, her Drakkar's moment in Astapor is one of those defining kick-ass hell yeah moments in the, in the books. But Daenerys has this line where she says, slay the good masters, slay the soldiers, Slay every man who wears a tokar or holds a whip, but harm no child under 12. And look, I'm not here to say don't kill the slavers, because, I mean, fuck those guys. But the cutoff age for killing the good master of Astapor reads a touch young. Just just a little young. 12 is, is awfully, awfully fucking young. Is that wrong to say? I, I don't know. But also, you know, in the books as well, when we're talking about the crucifixion of the great masters in Marine, we get Danny's internal dialogue, her monologue, where she thinks she had nailed them to wooden posts around the plaza each man pointing at the next. The anger was fierce and hot inside her when she gave the command. It made her feel like an avenging dragon. But later, when she passed the men dying on the posts, when she heard their moans and smelled their bowels and blood, 
dot, dot, dot. And she never really finishes the statement. But to me, this works as groundwork for Danny's mental state when she unleashes fire and blood on King's Landing. She'll feel like an avenging dragon at first, taking out her enemies, whether it's the Lannisters or young Griff. But ultimately, she's going to realize what she did and she's going to regret it. And, and again, I am not opposed to justice being dealt to an being dealt out to an oppressive class of people. But the thematic framework of the passage is Danny's emotional state. Like, it's not a just act. It's Danny as an avenging fucking dragon. That's the difference between justice. She orders the crucifixion of the great masters as collective punishment, as vengeance for what had been done to the slave children along the mile markers from Young Kai to Marine. And look, it is entirely understandable why Daenerys is so angry and why she does it. We are supposed to sympathize with Danny's motivations. We are supposed to recoil in horror from those passages where she's seeing the children being nailed up to the post. At the same time, Danny's reaction is one born of vengeance, not of justice. And then we get into a dance of dragons after Daenerys has taken Marine. Danny consents to the torture of the wine cellar's daughters in a dance of dragons, where she thinks mercy thought Danny. They will have the dragon's mercies. Skahas, I have changed my mind. Question the man sharply. And then Skaha says, I could. Or I could question the daughter sharply whilst the father looks on. That will bring some names for him. Then Danny says, do as you think best, but bring me names. Her fury was a fire in her belly. So, again, Daenerys consents to a violent act against innocence here. The wine cellar's one has been taken into questioning by, by the Unsullied. And he's the one that's likely responsible or had some part to play in it. But Daenerys allows Skahaz Mokandak to torture his innocent daughters who do not have anything to do with that in order to, quote, wring some names from, from him. And this is all done, of course, because Danny's, one of Danny's followers, one of her friends, where Lona Ree is murdered by the sense of the harpy in a brutal, horrible, terrible fashion. It's entirely understandable why Danny does the things that she does. But her reaction to innocence being butchered is one that we're supposed to kind of cock her head a little bit sideways at. And then we get to Danny on the Dothraki Sea after she flies away from Drogon. You know, the show sort of very vaguely shows Danny's mental state on the Dothraki Sea in season five, but the books have Danny eating magic berries and then hallucinating her brother Viserys and then Jorah as well. Not great, Danny. Not great. In that conversation with Ghost Jorah, Danny makes the final turn away from peace to a violent conception of her house words, where it's, quote, I was tired, Jorah. I was weary of war. I wanted to rest, to laugh to plant trees and see them grow. I am only a young girl. No, you are the blood of the dragon. The whispering was growing fainter as if Sir Jorah was falling farther behind. Dragons plant no trees. Remember that. Remember who you are, what you were made to be. Remember your words. Fire and blood, Daenerys told the swaying grass. So again, this is talking about Danny's mental state at the end of A Dance of Dragons. After she's done so many things for peace, she ends up abandoning it because she realizes that she, her destiny lies in warfare, not in peacemaking. And then we finally have events that haven't come to published light yet, but are likely to happen. They have a lot of groundwork set inside of it, and that is things like Daenerys and the Dothraki. Remember when Daenerys declares that Jaco and Mago will die screaming for what they did to Arya back in A Game of Thrones? Guess whose Kalasar just rolled up on Danny at the end of a at the end of a Dance of Dragons? Yeah, it's Mago and Jaco's Kalasar. And then we finally, and then we have the sword fire over Volantis. You know, we have Benero and the Red Priest of Volantis are all acclaiming Daenerys as a Zora High Reborn. But the prophecy has some, shall we say, frightening as shit possibilities for the city. And you can hear about that more in our Volantis episode on Patreon, which is a really excellent episode, if I don't, if I don't mind saying so myself. But they say, in Volantis, thousands of slaves and freemen crowd the Temple Plaza every night to hear Benero shriek of bleeding stars and a sword of fire that will cleanse the world. 
He has been preaching that Volantis will surely burn up the Triarchs, take up arms against the, Silver's, against the Silver Queen. Guess which Triarchs took, just took up arms against Daenerys at the end of A Dance with Dragons? If you guess the Valentine Triarchs, you're correct. We ha- And then finally, in terms of things that will likely happen in the books as well, we have Pentos and the betrayal of Magister Illyrio and the Tatter Prince as well. As we all know, Magister Illyrio is not necessarily out for Danny's best interest, as crazy as that sounds, you know, as if that wasn't abundantly clear in A Game of Thrones. We find out that he's actually supporting Aegon Targaryen and his quest to claim the Iron Throne. Then we also have the character of the Tatter Prince, who wants to seize Pentos out from under the Magisters there and establish himself likely as a strong man. What I see happening in that storyline is that Daenerys is going to violently replace the Magisters of Pentos, potentially killing Magister Illyrio himself and placing a strong man, horrible human fucking being in the form of the Tatter Prince in charge of Pentos. So ultimately what I'm getting at is that there's a ton of groundwork in the books for the same event to occur in King's Landing as what we saw in Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 5. You know, back in 2015, I wrote a theory post on Reddit called All Doors Are Red, a theory on the future of King's Landing, where I saw all of the foreshadowing that George put into the books for Danny to nuke King's Landing. And of course, I have to say a caveat, have to say a caveat. The one aspect I got wrong, a bit wrong rather, was that I thought it would be a quote, accidental nuking, meaning that I thought Danny would use Dragonfire on the city, but with the intent of getting it to surrender or something some sort. The city going kaboom would then derive from all the wildfire caches that are still hidden underneath the various parts of the city. But in that post, there's a line that kind of formed that kind of formed the nucleus of ideas around it. And that line comes from Danny's third chapter in A Game of Thrones. But it was not the plains Danny saw then. It was King's Landing and the Great Red Keep that Aegon the Conqueror had built. It was Dragonstone where she had been born. In her mind's eye, they burned with a thousand lights, a fire blazing in every window. In her mind's eye, All the doors were red. And ultimately, that's the real tragedy here. Daenerys has always yearned for her home and has idealized the house with the red door, which of course is in Bravos, as a place where she felt safe, where she belonged. But she will destroy King's Landing in the books, the home that her ancestors built and lived in. The house with the red door, her conception of it, will be twisted as all doors turn red from fires fires everywhere well said sir and i like that you brought up the wildfire cache theory that is something i actually still think will happen in the books but we'll talk more about that towards the end of the episode uh yeah that that red door stuff is is really so compelling when you come back to it because on one level it's the symbol of home for her that which she's always trying to find that that which she's desperate to find in westeros and which she says in season eight that she just hasn't found here like she thought she would so then you get the other meaning of the red door which is as a doorway to fire and blood which is Links up with how the Red Keep is described, and Dragonstone, and Valyria. This is the legacy that she kind of ran towards in her her ninth chapter in the Game of Thrones, which we're getting up close to on the regular Not a Cast, where she's having the dream of all her ancestors urging her faster, 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 and dragon wings to emerge from her, and she flies to that red door. And this is, yeah, this is at some level where she was going. And I, I agree with you, It's it's been heading there all along, even with these individual events that are justifiable if you take them in isolation. And yeah, you can argue away that, you know, of course, these are all the slavers or these horrible people who did this to children, or Randall and Dickon are refusing to bend the knee. But the problem is, is that each one of those is a step down. Mm-hmm. Each one of those is a little different. Each one of those gets a little closer to this. And I think once you take it... As a whole, then each individual step being justifiable or most of them being justifiable doesn't really matter compared to where it goes and where it ends. And I think you see something similar with Stannis. Like, yeah, we can make justifications about why killing Renly was okay or at least had a level of acceptability. 
And then you get a step down from that Courtney Penrose. Okay, he's still standing and defines the Stannis, but he seems a really likable guy, more so than the other lords around Stannis. But then you get a step down to Edric. Oh, no. <laughs> and Shireen. Oh, no. So it's, it's this constant, you know, tightening of the vice around this character and the decisions they're making. And I do think that that's present for Danny when, when it comes to this event in both, in both books and show. I think there's... Plenty of things to say about the execution and, and plenty of reasons to have issues with how the show was built up to this point. But yeah, the, the core idea of, of Danny coming home with fire and blood, I think that has been very present in her story from the beginning. Yeah. And I like something I really like something that you said about how it's a graduation, essentially, of events. And it's supposed to be tightening that vice, as you said, which is excellent, by the way. Good wording. I got a lot of feedback on Twitter being like, oh, you that's in this was totally justified for this reason this was totally totally justified for this reason this is to and i get it like i said there are sympathetic reasons why daenerys performs these violent these acts of violence in the books and in the show as well we understand that but we are graduating slowly and slowly and slowly towards this actual destruction of king's landing by daenerys targaryen in the books i think it's well established that this is going to happen and controversially i think it's it's Okay, it's okay established, I guess, in the in the show too. But that does leave the question of whether all the groundwork was established in the show for all the supporting characters, like Tyrion. Absolutely. There are a number of elements, like I said, that I think will be different in the books, none of which are meant to mitigate or paper over the horrible spectacle of thousands of civilians dying by fire, to be clear. I think that's still gonna happen in both books and show, and Danny's going to be at least partially responsible for it. But I think those elements are important when considering the shape of Danny's story, which is the big question of the discourse you were alluding to early, is how should we think about the structure of this character arc now? How should we think about Daenerys Targaryen? And for me, the big takeaway is the problem isn't really with Danny. The problem is with Tyrion. And uh, Sir, my reverend Clint M. asks, what do you think Tyrion's role will be in Danny's burning of King's Landing in the Winds of Winter Dream of Spring? What is the likelihood that his role will be switched from the show and that he will work, work toward the destruction of the city in his alignment with his I wish I didn't have poison for you all line from his trial in the Storm of Swords? And yes, Sir, my Reverend Clint gets a, exactly the point I want to talk about here, which is Tyrion is really the missing piece for how this comes together for Danny, because he's not going to be holding her back in the books. He's going to be cheering her on at this point. And I think he could potentially end up more culpable for the deaths of King's Landing than even Danny herself. Tyrion at the end of Dance is just nothing like Tyrion at the end of Season 5. He's in worse shape than he's ever been in terms of his worldview and goals, and that's going to combine with Danny's newfound embrace of fire and blood on the Dothraki Sea, like you said, like a match in an oily rag. Moreover, he knows something significant that she does not, that does not apply to the show, and that there is another candidate for Targaryen restoration, the supposed Egg on the Sixth, a.k.a. Young Griff, a.k.a. Young Griff. <laughs> which someone, someone called him that on Twitter, and I think it was an honest mistake. But it's such a stroke of genius that I'm keeping it because, yes, of course, he's a grift. Varus and Illyria are the ultimate grifters. It's just, mwah, it's just perfect. So, But anyway, more to the point. The signs are strong in the books that Tyrion doesn't really consider young grift to be the real deal. And that he's going to pass that along to Dany as kind of a devil-in-her-ear counselor more than a helpful counselor like he is in, in the show. And Danny's already going to be pissed at the idea of another Targaryen claimant nipping into Westeros ahead of her and winning both the throne and the people's love. Him being a fake, propped up by that traitor Illyrio, will just be the last straw. There's also, of course, the Mummer's Dragon prophecy and its potential impact on Danny's decision-making to consider that image she saw in the House of the Undying of this dragon puppet being waved aloft to a cheering crowd, clearly Varus being the Mummer, as fits befits his background as a Mummer, 
And young Griff is the dragon he's waving before the crowd, but the crowd loves him. And I think that's going to be crucial in terms of King's Landing, the King's Landing plot in the books. So what I'm saying is it won't be hard for Tyrion in full Littlefinger mode to outmaneuver her other counselors. And far from dissuading her, I think he's going to prod her Mm. into attacking the Red Keep in the books. He's going to be egging her on. And there is one more thing Tyrion knows about that Danny does not. And we alluded to it earlier. The wildfire in King's Landing. So here's here's what I think happens. I'm just going to lay out roughly what I think happens and wins, not just for, for fanfic's sake, but because I think putting it together with what we saw on the show answers some questions about why I think it's an element that will happen in the books, but but that the, the surface seems a little muddled. So here's what I think happens and wins. Team Aegon proves successful at winning battles and allies and the love of the people, while Cersei, far from taking the throne herself disintegrates in King's Landing as Varys intended when he killed Kevon and Pycelle at the end of Dance. When Aegon's army arrived, the Sparrows lead the masses in siding with him and ring the bells hmm. uh, in, in welcome of him. And this sets off the character who, in the books, actually has a thing about bells. And that's John <laughs> Connington. As is established in his first POV chapter, as you said at the top of the episode, in The Lost Lord in A Dance with Dragons, he reminisces about Stony Sept, the battle where he lost everything, and in his mind guaranteed his Silver Prince would die. And it's just the bells, the bells that rang at that battle, signaling Robert's emergence and victory that just haunt him, just knocking away inside his skull like Aaron Dampere and his shrieking, rusting iron hinge. Hmm. You know, Mar- Martin likes these little auditory cues as mantras because they're a great emotional way to center a character and like get down. This is their core. This is what's driving them. This is really who they are. So I think what happens in the books is those bells do go off and they do lead to a sack, but it's via John Connington. It sets off his PTSD about Stony Sept and he fulfills his desire to become Tywin as he says to himself in dance, I got to be more like Tywin Lannister this time and do whatever it takes. And he orders a second sack of the city. And my, my, my big contention, my, my, my bet that I will make is that Martin told the bell detail to D&D and they kept it despite not having John Connington, just as they kept the Frey Pies that we were talking about earlier, despite not having Wyman Manderley. That was a detail they liked. And we're told and think, okay, that's cool. We're going to filter it through. And of course, maybe I'm reading too much into it, as is my want, but the <laughs> bell detail is so specific to John Con in the books that it makes me think it's a detail that got through. Regardless, I think Cersei's going to flee in the chaos, prep wildfire for revenge as King Aegon and Queen Ariane set up shop in the Red Keep. Jamie turns up having escaped Stoneheart and in book canon, as we'll get into in a bit, I think he kills Cersei to prevent Eris' dream of nuking the city from coming true and he thinks he saved the day. But when Danny arrives, she attacks Team Aegon with dry, dragon fire and that sets off Dad's ripe fruits. Mm. And that, that, that I think is where we get Kaboom in King's Landing. And we did see a little wildfire go off in, in the show uh, re- last night regarding season eight, episode five. But I think we're going to see more of it in the books. And a lot of the elements are the same there. As, as we're both saying, I think the core foundational element is, is there in both books and show. Danny embraces fire and blood. She comes home in violence, not in glorious liberation. The opposing side is utterly wiped out in the process. And you have the specter of the Mad King haunting everything. But I think if Danny does go full-on heiress on the populace of King's Landing, I don't think it's going to be because of the part of this episode that really didn't work for me in Danny's arc, which is this thing about the people didn't rebel against Cersei the way I would want them to. Like, even a darker, crazier Daenerys, it just didn't make sense for me that she would think that, that that would be a driving motive. I think it's going to be more compelling in the books when it's not the people being too afraid to rebel against Cersei. It's the people actively supporting young Griff over her. <laughs> it's her being it's her being rejected, not just one of two evil you know, rulers fighting over the populace, but one that they've chosen. The crowd is cheering for the Mummer's Dragon, which means they're not cheering for Danny. 
And you, you have this line from Tiora Toland, this young Dornish woman in one of Ariane's released Winds of Winter chapters, where she has this prophetic dream about everywhere the dragons dance, the people died. So I think you, you get these members of the dragon family going head to head that is going to cause this massive collateral damage. Not a war between Danny and Cersei, but Danny going after young Griff. And I, I think that Danny's not going to know about this chain reaction that will, you know, compound her attack on the city, but that Tyrion will. And as, as Clint said in his question, this is his revenge on the city, which rejected him despite him saving them from Stannis' own fires, he said at his trial. I mean, this is why he encouraged young Griff to invade in the books in the first place, because he wanted a front row seat to watch it all burn. And there's a whole other layer to this, of course, if he's actually Aerys' son, because <laughs> then he's the ripe fruit coming home to blow up King's Landing just as dad would want. And because I think... Tyrion has this established motive of, of revenge and bitterness against Westeros and the people of King's Landing specifically that in the show just kind of leaked out of him. And he he gradually seemed to heal just because. And that, that same bitterness we see in the books was not quite there. So I think he he's going to be actively involved in, in this part of the books. And I'm not trying to excuse Danny's culpability. She's still going to be trying to wipe out a bunch of people and rule through fear in the best case scenario of how this happens in the books. I do think, however, that having her wrath combine unknowingly with her father's true legacy is more interesting than her just becoming heiress because I really think that's Cersei's role ultimately in the books. She's the one who's constantly compared to Eris in terms of the wildfire, in terms of how Jamie's talk about it with the paranoia, like her dream about the throne cutting her to pieces. Like I, I think that Cersei's the one who's going full on that mode and Danny is still ultimately supposed to be tragic. And as, as we were talking earlier about the you know the structure vis-a-vis the, the White Walkers I think if it's a compounded reaction that's not entirely in her control, I think that leaves her the opportunity to be horrified afterward and seek some action of repentance. Because I think in the books, the White Walkers are still going to be around at this point. I think she goes for King's Landing first in the books, specifically to deal with young Griff, and then deals with the others. I think that's more likely than her going dark in Essos and then dealing with the others and then going dark again to deal with King's Landing. I feel like King's Landing is the bottom, and she hits rock bottom before dealing with the others out of desperation. So that's 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 my overall arc, what I think happens in the books, and what I think that shows is that you need, I think you need an element of Tyrion there, because otherwise it, it's all on Danny. I think that's just was just kind of final and over the top in a way that didn't quite work for people, even who knew this was coming at some level. Because as you say, there's, there's set up for it in both show and books, but I think it, I think it combined with Tyrion's darkness and Tyrion's knowledge and the specific nature of the young Griff plot in a way that, for me, makes more sense. And for me, I, I felt the lack of that somewhat. On the whole, though, I completely agree with you that the, the seed is strong <laughs> as far as the core idea of Danny nuking King's Landing. I think you can see that from the first book. I think you can see development for that later in, in her character. I think you can definitely see it in how she's set up at the end of Dance, where we lost Sauer in the books. And I think we're going to see the steps to that descent. As I was saying earlier, we're going to see it in Volantis when she nukes the old blood. As you say, Venero kind of prophesies, prophesies that coming. We're going to see it in Pentos, the tender mercies of the tattered prince. Like, Illyrio might deserve your revenge, but the whole city doesn't. <laughs> but they're going to get it. You know, she's going to be leading the Dothraki, who are not exactly known for targeted killings. <laughs> and, like, only killing the bad guys, you know? They're, they're going to wipe out masses of civilians. And we're going to get to the point of King's Landing. I think, I think the execution will be smoother but that the core idea is the same. And that, you know, as I said, it brings you right back around to Stannis and Shireen. I think we, we, all, we all know where most of us know at this point that Stannis is going to burn Shireen in the books. But there, were, there will be so many details that make it a different and I think more resonant event. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic point I think you bring up. And that 
does take us to like the question about what George told them, right? And what we know from the from what interviews have revealed is that it was basically bullet points. So I can imagine a bullet point being Daenerys blows up King's Landing or burns King's Landing. I can imagine another bullet point, and I think it's a fantastic bullet point about John Connington and the bells being centered that triggers his PTSD to order the Golden Company to go in and wipe the floor with the human populace. Is that that doesn't sound like right in my mind? But at the same time, I think that's that's absolutely correct, and I think. We're getting essentially the bullet point ending endpoints of the story itself, like we got with Stannis burning Shireen. What we know from the books, even the published books and the Winds of Winter sample chapters from Theon's Winds of Winter sample chapter, we know that Stannis is not going to burn Shireen in the same context as he burns her in season five, episode nine of Game of Thrones. It has to be different because simply put, you know, Shireen and Stannis are in two fucking different locations. So... <laughs> Details, baby, details. I, I, but, but at the same time, like I, I think the the scenario you outlined has a lot more resonance to me. I was listening to you talk through it, I was really kind of struck by how powerful that type of storytelling is. You do have this Tyrion character who wants poison for all the citizens of King's Landing. You do have Daenerys who would feel a lot of rejection and a lot of hurt and sadness that the people that she's coming to liberate have rejected her in favor of, of a pretender. And Yes, I see where John and Cersei are sort of fulfilling young Griff's roles in the show, but it's just not landing the way it should land and the way it will land in The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring when Daenerys gets this sudden revelation that her long-lost nephew, quote-unquote, a.k.a. her, like, 15th cousin or something like that, or 5th or 6th cousin. <laughs> I mean, technically, if he's a Blackfire, he would be, like, way back, like, five, six generations back, right? So, ultimately, I think we're we're seeing a version of the story playing out that is going to play out in the books, but one that has a lot of the underpinnings, the foundation, and the things that make A Song of Ice and Fire great stripped out of it. Now, for me, I mean, I I enjoy the scene. I don't know how you could say you can enjoy watching a scene like that. To me, it made sense in 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 the episode itself and in the context of Asande being murdered by Cersei, in the context of Daenerys believing that Jon had betrayed her, that Varys had betrayed her, that Tyrion had betrayed her, that everyone is betraying her, that she would snap. But is it a better story than the one you've outlined? I don't think so. Is it satisfying in season eight in a season eight context? Yes, for me. Is it satisfying in a Song of Ice and Fire context? No, not for me. And to be clear, yeah, I'm not just saying it should match the fanfic in my head. I'm saying I think this is the outcome of the ripple effects George has talked about, where certain decisions they made in earlier seasons have big impacts in later seasons. And I think one of the big ones is what they've done with Tyrion, and that they've really shied away from the darker direction he's going in the books. And I think that makes certain events less resonant when you get to them, even if the core idea of those events are from the books. And it's just my attempt at explaining the kind of nagging feeling we're seeing in a lot of debates about this episode, where people are like, yeah... I get that the foreshadowing is there, I get the groundwork, but something feels somewhat off. And I think some of that can be explained to our desire to nitpick and have it be every way we want to be. But I think some of it is the stripping out of certain elements that are there to, to give it the real meaning and the real weight and the real punch. And I think there have been a lot of events like that over the back half of Game of Thrones, where it's not like it doesn't feel bad or wrong. It just feels slightly underwhelming. Mm. You know, it's, just, it's like the quote on the DVD box, slightly underwhelming <laughs> for, for, for all the, for all the great stuff that goes into it. I'm, you know, and I'm talking smack about the stuff I liked about the episode because I think the Danny stuff is actually uh, more well-founded than the Jamie and Cersei stuff, which we'll get into a second. But I, I, I do understand people's 
hesitance to embrace this episode and I don't em- embrace it fully even though there were a lot of aspects of it I really loved yeah and I think and that's that's just my attempt at explaining why I don't think it's entirely fair but it is just a result of the very peculiar phenomenon of adaptation this show is at this point as I've been saying throughout this episode yeah I think it's entirely fair even if it's not unfair at the same time if that makes sense it doesn't that fuck it po- poetically put sir that was like a Yogi Berra quote it, I love it, it it will but but now we turn our attention away from things that make sense and not make sense at the same time and that are fair and unfair and we get to Jamie as the not a car why are you looking at me like that Emmett I'm not mad at you Jeff I'm just I'm mad at the show and I'm mad at myself so. <laughs> that's that's good that's that's good it's good it's good to come into this feeling mad about this uh this portion of the episode so to kind of start this off I figured we would ask a question from one of our poor fellows Sir John H who asks I have been in a song of ice and fire obsessive for about five years that said, it has been incredibly distressing to me that I feel so little emotional weight when watching season eight. For example, Cersei and Jamie are two of my favorite fantasy villains slash antiheroes. And I would quibble with that, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll move past that. And when they died, I felt nothing. What was missing? Season eight has been above average in my opinion, but the emotional weight just isn't there. So my question to you guys is, what is missing to make it so unsatisfying? Will the books be similar? George R. Martin's previous work is full of anticlimactic endings, for instance. So I think that's a really good question, and it reads you in really well to talking about something that he mentions in his question, namely how Jamie and Cersei go out in this episode. So was it good? Was it bad? Emmett, your thoughts? Well, I think he nailed it in terms of Season 8 having a lot of incredible elements in the music and the costuming and and a lot of plot events that do seem strongly rooted, at least suggested that in character arcs, but there's there's some nagging feeling of emptiness around the edges, and I think Jamie and Cersei brought that to the fore more than any other part of this episode, at least for me, although I do feel, I do have mixed opinions about it, because look, on the one hand, the show chickened out on what is very obviously coming down the pike for these two in the Winds of Winter, namely Jamie killing Cersei and fulfilling the Valonqar prophecy, which doesn't exist in the show. And I think that's a missed opportunity in a variety of ways. It is the perfect capstone to Cersei's story, that she assumed it would be Tyrion this whole time, but it was actually the brother she never thought would think for himself. That's that's the ultimate downfall for Cersei that, that fits her character and fits her decision-making. It, it both removes Jaime from Cersei's orbit for good without making that easy on him. It, it, it digs into the horrible, violent costs of losing part of yourself like that and really detaching from... A relationship that toxic and long-standing is just going to leave scars. And ultimately, it's less deflating than watching a ceiling fall on them because... Look, it's it's not because, you know, oh, it's it's lame that Cersei didn't get beaten to death in front of me. It's that I want a situation where it's really born out of these two characters. And having Cersei die, not because really because of her own decisions, but because... She didn't think Danny would go as hard as she did with the dragon. I'm sorry, that's just not as satisfying as it being directly relevant to how she treated the people around her her whole life. I just, I just think that's, that's, that's a much more satisfying end and it provides something for Jamie because as it stands, Jamie's story feels like it kind of went nowhere as a lot of people who are much more into Jamie are pointing out. And which is too bad because I actually enjoyed him as a character in season eight up to now, but I, I, I do feel kind of empty about the way it ended and, on the other hand, when I'm like imagining again the scenario that I would like to see in my head, while Cersei's hands are soaked in blood and she'll never repent for it, it is weird to find yourself saying, oh, I'm so disappointed I didn't get to watch her ex-lover murder her. Like, I was looking forward to seeing that. Right? Like, this is, 
It's a different. I'm just. It's, I'm saying it's a different situation from something like Clegane Bowl because there can be no pretense of any bonds of affection or the responsibilities that go with them between Sandor and Gregor Clegane. Like that's over. That's been over for decades. Jamie and Cersei's relationship is just more complicated than that in a way that makes cheering it on Jamie killing Cersei feel kind of gross. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Like I it's do. not something supposed you're supposed to be rooting for. So while I do still think it's happening in the books and it has the potential to be very well done there. It is just a, a wretched event. It is different when it involves an actress as opposed to just like a character in text. I, I, I can't say, I can't say that I'm sorry I didn't have to watch Lena Headey getting choked for two minutes. They, I, it seems like they may have set out to excise this element from the start given that they never had the Valonqar prophecy. And if so, that is far from the worst adaptational decision they've made. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, I didn't want to see Lena Headey get killed in this episode or killed specifically by Jamie in a worst possible horrible way possible. I mean, I, I know that there's some people in this fandom for whatever reason that have read A Song of Ice and Fire and have read the arcs of Theon Greyjoy and have been like, yeah, choke that bitch. And like, it's that's not like <laughs> like when Martin is writing that Jamie is going to be the Valonqar, it's not supposed to be this triumphant moment of glorious you know, comeuppance for a bad character is supposed to be a incredibly tragic, sad, awful, terrible thing. And that's part of the beauty of A Song of Ice and Fire that we maybe that I feel was lost a little bit in the episode itself. But at the same time, I'm OK with Jamie not being the one to kind of choke Cersei out. Now, the interesting thing about it, though, is that when we're talking about the bullet points for the end of A Song of Ice and Fire and the end states of characters that George told David and Dan back in 2013, you can imagine George saying something to the effect of, Jamie and Cersei die together at the end of their storyline. Well, they fulfilled that bullet point, just not every other plot point to get right there leading up to the actual moment of death. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Even as I think it would be a great capstone or comeuppance for Cersei's arc on the whole, yeah, I wouldn't want it framed as, as awesome for Jamie to do it because as we were suggesting earlier about the justified killings of Danny or Stannis or other characters, just because you have a reason to do it doesn't mean it doesn't tear a part of you out to end another human being. That just, that just does something to you, especially when it's large masses of people. And we think about Danny and that red door and like, once you open that door inside yourself, even if you do it for a justifiable reason, you, you don't know what's going to come out of it later. Like some things can escape you that you never thought would would be first possible when you open that door. And in Danny's case, to make the metaphor complete, there's no one to hold the door. Hmm. There's no one to close it when she's opened that Pandora's box inside herself. So that can lead you from from doing justifiable actions to unjustifiable actions. And that descent can happen to even people with the best of intentions, not just outright mentally ill people like Eris. And I I think that's an important theme to bring up. I think Danny's story is in large part about that. And that's clearly what the show is going for. And, you know, I do I do have quibbles about it, but they are quibbles on the surface and have a lot to do with how I think it will go in the books. And as I said, a lot of that is just pent up yearning. So if I had the book with me, I'd be much more fine with this than I am. Mm. Um, One one point I do want to bring up here before we uh, shift into a question, more questions from our dear patrons is something people have brought up about this episode having a, a theme of like you can't escape your past or your family or your ghosts uh, I, I don't know how intentional it is and it's certainly appropriate for some characters but it was predominant across Jamie and Sandor and Danny and that being the overall note kind of left a bad taste in my mouth or to put it another way it left kind of a bitter taste <laughs> in my mouth when we talk about the bittersweet ending this was overwhelmingly bitter and that's fine but I think there really has to be a contrast to that in the finale for this to come together. We need a healthy dollop of sweet 
in episode six. I'm going to say that much, and we'll, we'll we'll see we'll see where that comes from. I think we'll we'll, we'll touch on that uh, a little more before we end this. But <laughs> I just want I just want to say that yeah, that that theme is being talked about, and I think that was overall very present in this episode, and. I think that can be made whole by episode six. Fantastic points about how this episode left you empty, especially with that you can't escape your family and your past and your ghosts. I think that's so important because the general feeling that I got at the end of this episode was one of nihilism. That's what I kind of felt at the end of it, just empty, nihilistic. And that's, I guess you're supposed to because King's Landing is destroyed. But at the same time, Arya makes it out. So maybe it's not supposed to be totally nihilistic. <laughs> Whatever. Um, it's so- a fine line to walk in the books. Uh, you know, one of the best thing about the books we've said before is it walks that fine line where it's not quite tipping over to grimdark, even though it's showing you the abyss. And it's easy to fall over that line. I think it's happened in the books. I think it's happened more often in the show. That's, you know, that's not to say that they're all hacks or they misunderstood everything, but that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's a careful tonal balancing act and sometimes it tips over. Yeah. And we can agree there. So that takes us to our questions portion of this episode. If you guys are one of our patrons, we usually throw up a Q&A post on the Monday morning after the Sunday night of the Game of Thrones episode. And you're welcome to sign up for that at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIF, where, of course, we have to give the plug here, where you can get bonus episodes, uh, early access to our main and bonus episodes. You can also get show notes, the ability to ask us questions that we will have to answer in the main cast and all sorts of other goodies. So we appreciate all our patrons. We recently just hit 800 patrons here, which is amazing. And you guys are amazing. And I'm feeling emotions that I shouldn't feel because I am an emotionless void. This right here, this guy right here. Having the hole inside has been my shtick this episode, Jeff. You can't steal my void. I, give my void back. <laughs> How can I give something that's not there back? Oh, that's so deep, man. Oh, man, I just graduated sophomore year of college. So, uh, on into the questions of this episode. Our first question comes about comes from Lady Jojo D, a poor fellow who asks, I found Clegane Bowl completely unsatisfying because once Sander realized his brother was undead and likely and unlikely to die, then it becomes kind of pointless. What's your opinion? Did it live up to the hype? Oh, Clegane Bowl. Clegane Bowl. I... The fact that we call it that is part of the problem, guys. Yeah. I, I just, um, I, I never had any stake in Clegane Bowl as something that is going to occur. I guess now we can say with some certainty that there will be some sort of Sandor Gregor contention at some point in the future of the books. Did I, was I like super invested in it? No, I wasn't super invested in it in the, in the character moments themselves. I was actually more invested in Sandor pushing Arya away and letting her live. Like that's what I found is the emotional heart in Sandor's story that he does not want Arya, he did not want Arya to become the type of character that he was. That's what I found satisfying. And I never thought that Sandor and Gregor fighting was going to be satisfying in any sense of the word. I mean, it was basically like Autobots versus Decepticons beating each other up essentially. Yeah, very Clash of the Titans and not in the good way. Very rock'em, suck'em robots. But yeah, I agree. The, the highlight of the whole episode, I think, was that little Sandor Arya scene. That was truly great. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised some version of this would happen in the books, but it's not supposed to be something you go airhorn, airhorn, airhorn for. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of tragic and screwed up. And you can see that in that Gregor isn't really Gregor anymore. Like, there's a reason they have a different name for him in the books. He's, he's mm. a zombie. He's this, again, like I described him in a previous episode, just this big mass of flesh given this weird spark by Kyburn. And maybe there's some catharsis for Sandor to take, take him down, and that's up to Sandor, but 
yeah, it was framing it as, as the big fuck yeah moment never really made that much sense for any of the, any of these characters. And I was, I was just fine with it. I kind of watched it happen and, and didn't feel too much. <laughs> I think, I think I, the Arya connection is there. And I think I, I talked about it in, in, in the build up to this episode that I would have a connection to Sandor versus Gregor if he was saving someone. And he kind of was, not directly, but in the way of saving someone from coming like himself. So, that that's a strong enough element. I'll take it. But yeah, the the event itself, I was just completely detached. Yeah, same thing. Flipping a little bit flat. Our next question comes from Sir Alan C, a poor fellow, and actually an, an IRL friend of mine who is one of the best dudes alive. He actually read the Coster's Tale as a better reader about a year and a half ago. So he's actually an amazing dude. He's a he's a really good friend. He asks, "Did you feel like Danny burning King's Landing is the third thing that George R. R. Martin revealed to David and Dan in their discussion? That kind of ho- oh the holy shit moments, the three holy shit moments, or was the show always headed this way?" So again, I'm sure almost all of you know this. The three holy shit moments were three major events that occur at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire or our character endpoints or character reveals that both David and Dan came out and said, oh my God, these are holy shit moments in the books. So the first one was that Stannis burns Shireen. The second one was that Hodor means hold the door. And the third one has yet to be explicitly revealed. So the question is, was the third moment Danny burning King's Landing? Is that the third thing? And controversially i'm going to say no that is not the third holy shit moment in uh, that was revealed here i think that's actually coming in the next episode itself the climax of a song of ice and fire and i'm still going to hold to what i said back when we were talking with joanna robinson from vanity fair back in december of how much of the winds of winter dreary spring have season six and season seven spoiled and say that the third holy shit moment is that daenerys targaryen dies and I think now, after watching episode five, I think that part of the holy shit portion of it is the one who actually kills Daenerys Targaryen. At the at that point we were discussing back in December, I thought that maybe Daenerys would die in battle or die in some sort of self-sacrifice against the others. I definitely don't think that now. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And I, I completely agree that while some people could see this as the third holy shit moment, I think they've always known some version of this was coming. This wasn't something that George revealed to them partway through the series. Uh, the the third one, though, is, yeah, Daenerys' death. And I think that's definitely coming at, at someone's hand next episode. And I'll talk about who specifically in a couple questions. But, yeah, I think if we had to pick between these two, I'm with you. Our next question comes from Sir Penchant from Nostalgia, a Kingsguard patron, who asks, Do you guys think that with the backlash of how things are going with the show, that this will be encouraging for George to finish the books, to show how to write the story right, or discouraging to him that people are unhappy with how things end? I don't want to be glib and say both and they cancel out, but this, that's, that's kind of how I feel. Like, man, there's so many factors that go into whether George can write the story quickly enough to feed everyone's appetites. I don't... I, Part of me wonders if he's, like, numb to any more inputs in that regard. Like, surely, surely he's felt all he can feel at this point in terms of how much he wants to get this book out. And we all want to get this book out. Uh, my instinct is to say that there's a liberating aspect of not having an ongoing show to keep up with. Um, but, you know, I think he probably got massively discouraged by the reaction to Feast and Dance after how long he worked getting those out. So more discouragement in terms of fan reaction will not help. And... Overall, the question I always come back to is, is just how much pressure he's receiving from, you know, his, his, his publishing agency and, and the people who are depending on him in that regard. I, I will see if that ramp, ramps up a rap stand over the show is done, but it's, it's, I could see it going in any possible direction, <laughs> which means probably none of them. 
Interesting. I so I think it's going to work to spur George along. And so <laughs> let me talk a little bit about things that I've heard, right? Gosh, I'm going to get myself in so much fucking trouble already. Good, good. I love it already. So I've heard, <laughs> heard of course, that George was very nearly complete on The Wind's Winter back in 2015. And he ended up pulling that book from publication just prior to saying that he was done because he was unsatisfied with how the book was and how it stood. And he has embarked on seemingly four years worth of rewrites since 2015, 2016 in order to get the book up to snuff. Now, in my opinion, George's driving motivation to finish The Winds of Winter back in 2015 was because he was trying to beat season six of Game of Thrones. Now we're at the tail end of season eight, and the question is, is that going to spur George to finish The Winds of Winter now? Seeing the backlash he's getting from fans or seeing backlash from fans, both for the book not being done, as well as backlash about how season eight is gone. I'd like to say yes, but I also am going to add a small caveat and say that I think, I think, that a driving motivation for George to finish The Winds of Winter is to get ahead of the coming Long Night Show, which will be airing in early 2020, we believe, or it's going to be filming later this year, airing in 2020 at some point. And one of the reasons why I think that might be the case is that George has said that we are going to go farther north than we've ever gone before in the winds of winter, and we'll learn more about the others. Well, that seems like it's going to be a pretty big fucking portion of the Long Night Show, since the Long Night is all about the others, or the White Walkers in the show's parlance, and as well as the Song of Ice and Fire's parlance. Fighting against the the, our, our, the last hero, the prince that was promised, and all these types of characters here. So that's my hope. Now, as has been reported by George today, no, he has not done The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. That's a stupid fucking ugly theory. And I'm so kind of upset with Sir Ian McKelleny. Sir Ian, he actually is a knight, I think. But with Ian McKelleny, who said that, oh, I've heard that George R. R. Martin's done both the books and has made a deal like, no. No, you guys need to watch Admiral Kurd's video about why that's a stupid fucking thing that nobody should believe because there's so many reasons that go that cut against that. I do love it's very in character as Barristan for him to get duped, though. <laughs> right. And pa- pass on information that isn't actually reliable. That is something Barristan Selmy would do. Yes. So he's staying wonderfully in character, just like Stephen Delane does when someone asks him, have you enjoyed Game of Thrones? He's like, whatever. I got paid. I'm fine. <laughs> fine. Fine. Yeah. Oh, man. So, great questions for Penchant for Nostalgia. Our next one comes from our glorious Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, who asks, What was the point of the Cersei pregnancy storyline? Good question. Jeff, what do you think? Good question. <laughs> I mean, I guess, okay, it's a hope for a new life and a way outside, like when Tyrion talks about Cersei and Jaime and the kid running away to start a new life. That was the one, that little scene with Tyrion and Jaime was the one moment where the Cersei pregnancy storyline worked for me. And I could see it as a dramatic element as, oh, this hope for a new life that's going to be snatched away cruelly. Fine. But I was hoping for another twist on top of that. Like, she turns out not to have had a baby the whole time and was lying right. to Jamie or, or, you know, it's actually Euron's or some such. So, again, it felt like an element in, in the episode that wasn't bad, but just, you know, seemed like it needed an extra jolt. Yeah. And I feel like we were talking about the, the nihilistic feeling that I had earlier. I felt like that might have been the the main triggering mm. mechanism for that feeling of nihilism at the end that you have this hope for new life the possibility that they could progress beyond the game of thrones and you know a, a child an unborn child and like it's just ripped away <laughs> and when beggar's whole fast collapses on top of them that's that's the end of of that uh, wow that's 
that's so that's so dark and nihilistic and not in a way that I appreciate necessarily. Yeah, it just felt a little abrupt and kind of got Talisa flashbacks, honestly. You know, yeah. a storyline that no one was particularly fond of. So, yeah, no, agree. That, that, that That's something I was hoping would pay off better, like a lot of the Jamie Cersei stuff. Our next question, which I alluded to a couple questions ago in terms of how things end up with Danny, comes from Sir Knight of the Laughing Tree, a brand new Sworn Sword patron. Welcome, Sir Knight of the Laughing Tree. Welcome, welcome. And they ask, so, that was a lot. True. <laughs> Obviously, there was a lot of tension being built between John and Danny. They couldn't possibly peacefully coexist at this point. My question is, who will kill the other? Will Danny have John executed via Drogon? Please, God, say he too is in fight remune. Will John kill Danny? Will either be set up as a Nissa Nissa type sacrifice? And can we really believe their love was somehow serious enough to justify that mirroring? <laughs> wow. We'll get to that latter portion, but yeah, I do think John is going to kill Danny in episode six, and that is the third holy shit moment that was being referred to by D and D that George told him about that because of her descent or what she did in King's Landing or his fears for what she might do to Sansa because that paranoia has been brought was brought up a couple times in this season that John will will kill Daenerys maybe. There's that, you know, shot of her in the throne room from the House of the Undying where the snow and or ash is falling. So maybe it happens there. I could see that definitely. But yeah, you have these Nissa Nissa echoes from the source material of, of Azor Ahai sorrowfully killing his his loved one to save the world. So I guess that's what they could be going for. I think a lot of people didn't think it would be played that straight with John and Danny. Uh, in terms of mirroring that that situation, but it it well could be, and again, could have emotional layers that surprise us or brought to the fore. But yeah, I agree with Sonata the Laughing Tree that their relationship, specifically in terms of uh, charisma and chemistry between actors, was not quite there in terms in terms to match its archetypal significance and significance to the story as a whole. I get that it's in the title. I get that John and Daenerys have been coming for each other in characters in both book and show. I definitely didn't feel it the way I felt John and Egret. And maybe I wasn't supposed to because it's not actually John's true love and not actually the one he's going to remember. But if it, if it is supposed to carry that much weight as, as the big final climactic twist of everything, um, I don't think I care enough about the relationship to, for that to work. It, I, the performances in episode six might well be enough to. I'll, I'll just say that. I could definitely feel it in the moment. As it stands, I think that's happening and I'm, I don't think I'm quite going to feel it. What about I you, sir? I'm with you there is that I don't feel the chemistry between the two actors and part of that lack of chemistry and that chemistry that we did see between Johnny Grit in season two and season three of Game of Thrones and season four as well is that it was borne out because the two were in an actual relationship and they got married this past summer. So they had a lot of actual chemistry, which is great. Amelia Clark and Kit Harrington don't have the same chemistry. I mean, they, they seem friendly on set from all I can, all I can see, but I don't feel like a lot of emotional weight behind the relationship too it more feels like they're saying things without meaning them necessarily like i love you i love you i love you too like okay we we get it we get it demonstrate that love in some way and i guess like you could say that john's demonstrating his love by not taking the iron throne because so many people want to take the iron throne from daenerys but <sighs> demonstrating your love by not doing a thing is, right may, might be appropriate but it's not especially dramatically strong um you know, I, I do think, you know, you can obviously do a lot of great things by omission. I think it would be great, for example, in that theory I was talking about earlier about Tyrion being involved in the explosion. Tyrion spends so much time running his mouth and talking and being loquacious because that's his one weapon. <laughs> I think it would be fascinating if his ultimate sin was staying silent and not letting Danny know about, you know, the score in King's Landing with the wildfire. But yeah, with John in terms of his big act of love for Danny, that's, that's, that's not quite there. And it does feel, 
It does feel like they just have to be together. It's like they're just mm-hmm. two attractive young people who are leaders. They're in love. And it, yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't quite feel organic. But that's, you know, that's not something to blame the overall structure and writing of the show for. Like the foundational blocks, I think, are in place. Yeah. For that, for that to be the climax of the show. I think it's, I think it's going to be another situation which upsets a lot of people for some reasons I share and some reasons I don't. Agreed there. So that's going to be interesting to see. So thank you, Sir Knight of the Laughing Tree, for the question and welcome again to our Patreon. Our next question comes from Sir JDL, a poor fellow patron who asks a question after, after poor Quentin's own heart. Namely, so how do you guys think Quaith will help fix Danny's situation in the next episode? Ah, uh, you guys just love me. Yeah, Quaith is going to show up and say like five cryptic things, one of which will pay off. <laughs> Quaith, Quaith will go full Quaith on this situation. I love one of the great things I love about Melisandre coming back in the long night is just like me going like, yeah, that's why Melisandre is ten times the character Quaith is because Melisandre does things. <laughs> she doesn't just stand there and say things in the corner and then leave. So thank thank you for the the wonderfully torturous question, Sir JDL. I I, I fear that Quaith is going to be a loose dangling thread in the show, which is just such a shame. Such potential there. So much potential in Quaith. Show and books. I'm just so excited to see what happens with her in the Windsor. God, I hope she falls she, off a fucking cliff. She sure does wear that mask that she has. <laughs> the lacquered mask. It's a lacquered mask. mask. It's so pretty. And a more serious note, our final question for the episode comes from Lady Fiona P., a poor fellow patron who asks, What sweetness do you see them bringing to the last episode? I love what they've done, but I only see heartbreak for everyone. And yeah, that's... What I was talking a little bit about earlier is um, h- how do you match the overwhelming dose of bitter in this episode, regardless of how well you, th- you thought it was executed. Again, I liked it more than I've liked most of the episodes in this season, but I felt kind of a, a nagging feeling that it wasn't quite as good as I wanted it to be. But that's not the same thing as it being bad. But it, it does leave, I think, this hole that needs to be filled by the next episode if it's going to have, you know, real weight. Does, do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think that's totally fair to say. And I think you had alluded to this earlier, but I think the ultimate sweetness portion of Game of Thrones has to come in the form of House Stark and what happens after all of the shit in King's Landing is resolved in one way or the other. And so we have characters like Sansa, we have Bram, we have Arya, who's seemingly on in a, in a better place. I think that I am... This kind of goes back to the the question before about who kills Daenerys. I think that Arya is being like shown very strongly. She's riding a pale mare. She's you know riding the pale mare, riding a white horse. She's she's no one. She she's a gifted assassin. She's certainly going to be the one to kill Daenerys. But of course, the subversion of of the trope, of course, is going to be that it's actually going to be Jon, which isn't actually a total subversion as well. So the sweetness portion, I think, has to come from the restoration of House Stark. Is it coming from the Seven Kingdoms breaking off the Seven Kingdoms again? I mean, that's been a long-held fan theory. I don't think there's a lot of sweetness in that. But I do wonder whether we'll see a number of flashes, so to speak. Like I said in previous episodes, like at the end of The Wire, where we'll see a character like Lord Gendry Baratheon in Storm's End with a pregnant wife. We'll see a character like Edmure Tully, who, and of course, Tobias Menzies has been cast in season eight, but we'll see him in River Run doing amazing, wonderful things because Sir Edmure Tully, or Lord Edmure Tully at this point, has done only one thing wrong in his entire life. And that would be nice. I think that's where the sweetness is going to come. Is that going to be felt, though, if it's a montage of different characters, that of tertiary characters kind of doing their own thing? I don't know. I think, I think that'll help, and I definitely think that's going to happen. Sam and Gilly, I think, are going to be 
key to a sense of warmth moving on because as we've said in previous episodes they're you know the breeding pair and Sam is named after the character from Lord of the Rings who comes back to a loving family and writes the story so he's going to have some some analogous role and yeah how stark the the family at the center of it the family that's been yearning for each other the whole story and finding each other in bits and pieces uh, it's, it's going to rest on them collectively I think Sansa is going to have a lot to do with that I think she's likely to end up in charge of Winterfell to some capacity which will make a lot of people very happy myself included and I think that the sense of her you know trying to own what's happened to her and move forward and do right by her people is going to be a, a sense of, of comfort and closure when they get to this final episode I think we'll get some version of some kind of great council, however vague it is, in terms of the political future of Westeros, and you'll have a character like Davos on it, Tyrion if he survives, uh, Sam will contribute, and you have characters like, you know, Edmure and Gendry on the fringes. So I think that, you know, that sense of hopeful possibilities for tomorrow will, will be the sweet aspect to it, and the, yeah, the, the, the bitter core of it, I think that will translate from episode five over to episode six is going to be the John Danny stuff. Agreed there. Agreed there. So I think that about wraps us up for Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 5. Was it The Bells? Is that what it's called again? It was The Bells. The Bells. So as always, thanks everyone for listening. And thank you all so much for supporting us on Patreon as well. Those of you guys who are listening to this episode on Tuesday. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. You can follow us at NotacastASOIAF on Twitter or shoot us an email at NotacastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin. And you can find me at Brenda Peefish on Twitter, Brenda Peefish on Reddit. And my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. And additionally, you can always follow us on patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF, become one of our subscribers, and you can get bonus episodes, early content, you can get show notes, questions and answers, and special Patreon-only posts to include these question posts, which helpfully augmented so many of the points that we made in this episode itself. Thank you all so much for your patronage. It means a lot to us. So join us next week for the final episode of Game of Thrones. We gear up for the for the real ending to this story. Yes, of course, but I've, I, I've heard... You know, sources always tell me all these sorts of stuff that the final title credit sequence will flash back to George R. R. Martin sitting in his chambers with a very important announcement. Wild Cards, Flop the Nuts is complete at long last. And the long wait is over, people. Yes, indeed. I'm so excited. So actually, that's, that's not going to happen. Sorry, I don't think that's going to happen. We're not going to get anything like that. Sorry, sorry. That's my final prediction. Apologies to all the wildcard fans. But yes, join us next week for the final episode of Game of Thrones and for our next episode in our chapter-by-chapter analyses, which is going to be a Catalan 10 on the Whispering Wood. That's a favorite chapter of mine, so it's going to be really enjoyable to do and love to hear what you all think. Absolutely. So thanks for listening, and we will see you guys next week. 